before we learn to meditate, for example, um, or have some other spiritual practice which gets in touch with the true self, we identify with, we tend to, I could say, but really it's just we identify with an external version of what we are, externally referenced. So what have we achieved? What have we failed at? What do we look like? What, importantly, what have other people told us we are? What does society tell us we are? All these things go to form a picture and how we're received by society or not well received by society. All these things go to form a picture which makes up our impression of ourself. I'm Alison Rice and welcome to Offline, the podcast. These are honest conversations about true self with the people behind the Instagram accounts and the teachers who help us on our way. A lot has changed since I launched Offline in September 2018. It started as a podcast, and thanks to your ongoing support, it turned into a movement. Today, Offline exists to help us explore the essence of who we are and how to live, create, and succeed in alignment with that. This is our true self. There's the podcast a series of online courses I've created with our collective needs in mind and experiences that allow us to connect as a community. Visit getoffline.co to find out more or follow getoffline.co on Instagram. I hope this episode helps you on your way. Thank you for being here. I read somewhere that to our minds, meditation is the drawing back of the bow. It helps us launch into activity and action. If you listen to my honest conversation at Sundays Offline, you'll know about my next guest, Matt Ringrose. As our story goes, a very accurate palmist told me a spiritual teacher was going to come into my life and that when they did, to just say yes. A week after that reading, Matt DM'd me to ask if I might like to learn to meditate. Of course I ran there, and when I began to learn, I knew I was exactly where I needed to be. Offline started as an exploration of self with the women behind the Instagram accounts, and thanks to your support, it's evolving. I'm introducing teachers and healers so we can all learn together, and so I'm thrilled Matt agreed to talk to us about Vedic meditation, a silent mantra-based technique. One of Matt's strongest attributes as a teacher is his relatability. I think sometimes we can shy away from exploring spirituality because the entry point feels so high. Everyone seems so well-behaved and pure. There's a lot of chai and not a lot of wine. But Matt, as a DJ and successful entrepreneur, he's been where the majority has been. Drugs, alcohol, addiction and pain. And so when he teaches, it's through the lens of those experiences. Sitting to learn with him over the course of a week and now practising twice daily, it's hard to describe all the ways in which Vedic meditation has changed my life. In this episode, I ambitiously ask Matt to unpack some Vedic philosophy in the hope we shed some light on why this particular technique is so powerful. We recorded at Bondi Meditation Centre, so we hope you enjoy the birds. I also pronounce Vedic wrong the entire time, which is very cringeworthy, but as always, I am all of us. Here's Matt and I for Offline. 
Like I found it interesting the moment I tell people I've started meditating, mm-hmm. you know, people bring forward their meditation stories, which is actually amazing and yeah. their techniques and practices and, uh-huh. oh, I do deep breathing for 10 minutes every morning yeah. or whatever it might be or my favourite app is this. Yeah. How do you... Um, how would you talk about Vedic in context with the other kind of mindful practices that people do? Because I guess what I've been yeah. doing is trying to um, inarticulately like <laughs> describe yeah. it to people, which yeah, I should yeah. probably stop doing. So, well, it's tricky. It's like a bit of a can of worms because you don't want to go out straight up competitive, do you? So which this is, is better. I, this yeah. is better. So. Let's just answer this question carefully. <laughs> so if somebody talked to me about their meditation practice, the, and I, the first question I kind of generally ask is, and, and how, how do you enjoy that? Is that giving you what you want and you're getting a lot out of it? If they say yes, that's end of story for me. So I don't um, start offering details about the meditation and what it can do for you or how it might be better than anything else, certainly, unless inquiry comes in. And this is kind of a bit of a Vedic rule, or certainly a guideline, which is that we don't offer any knowledge unless we get worthy inquiry. Worthy inquiry meaning someone's interested and they're asking. Because if they're not asking, we don't need to vomit it upon them. Because they're not going to like that. And in fact, they, that may cause a bit more separation between us and them and create some kind of confrontation even. So that's mm. one answer, the diplomatic way of dealing with it. But if I was just me and you having a chat, you know, talking turkey, then I would say that Vedic meditation is different from other styles because it's effortless. Most of the styles um, involve concentration of some form, whether it's on the breath, a chakra point, a body scan, a flame, something. Some level of concentration, some level of controlling the mind and forcing it to do something unnatural. And these techniques work, but they're harder. They're just harder. This technique's so great because it's, um, it's effortless. All we do in Vedic meditation is we think this sound, in the, as you know, <laughs> you think <laughs> the sound in the mind and then after a while of thinking... And you the forget, sound is your mantra. And the sound is your mantra. And after a while of thinking, you forget to think it and then you drift around for a while and you come back and think it again. And this process, very simply, causes the mind to settle down mm-hmm. and you access very deep states and... Frankly, you access much deeper states than you would with other, most of the techniques that I'm aware of mm. in the same period of time. So the first time you meditate with this technique, I'm not sure what your experience, Alison, was, but you can mm. tell me, um, is that you go pretty deep. Mm. A lot of people go pretty deep and I'm connect I'm not going to be insulted that you don't remember. The exact <laughs> report. No, I just want to remind you, I'm fairly confident it's okay, otherwise I probably wouldn't be going down this line. <laughs> but um, most people do. Most people have an experience of some depth straight away. Mm, which I did, yeah. Which, given that you've got no idea what you're doing, basically, and you just sat down ten minutes ago, you hadn't started, is interesting. So you can get to deeper states more quickly. So the quick summary is: Vedic meditation is probably the easiest technique mm-hmm. um, to experience, you know, deep meditative state in, and it also seems to be the most effective mm. in terms of its mental and health, mm. mental and physical health benefits. Mm. So that combination is is why I teach it. And it's 20 minutes twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. It's 20 minutes twice a day. And I've said to you, it's like the afternoon is hard. We meditated before we started, so that was good. Because we did, got in the zone. Yeah, that was a very good meditation. And why? how did you class that as good? What was good about it for you? 
Well, you know, I lost the feeling in my hands uh-huh. yep. um, and I know we're not supposed to chase that feeling, but I constantly chase that feeling because <laughs> for me, that's a marker of like, sure. I'm in, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got that, which I will admit to, I haven't had in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I guess I didn't really think, but I, I was saying to you, I had a lot of um, tension in my throat. Yeah. Which you were saying is an expression thing because we're about to yeah. do that very thing. That would be that would make sense. Yeah. The throat chakra chakra may have been active mm. in that meditation because yeah, this is very much we were approaching a, a kind of significant moment of communication and self expression. Mm. So what was yours like? My meditation was um, quite shallow at first. I had quite a lot of thinking, and I was kind of thinking about this and oh, maybe I am a bit nervous and um, <laughs> things like that. And then I thought, oh, what about Jack, my son? You, can, you know, what if he comes back in the middle of the recording? I need to text him. And then I started settling and I started noticing kind of, it's almost like the edges of the body in general. It's kind of melting more into space around me. So not so belittle me anymore. Um, and then it became quite blissful and really kind of lush. Mm. And it was like, I look, looked down, I thought, like, oh no, it's almost finished. I want to keep going, but I knew we had a podcast to record. I know. So yeah, it was nice. It was really nice actually. Mm. Yeah. And then can we I briefly talk about which I mean is I don't know if we really can briefly talk about it, but mm. where does Vedic meditation come from and originate? Yeah, because and the context I have there is it seems to me that by committing to the practice of 20 minutes twice a day, yeah. you're also committing to perhaps a bunch of other things, uh-huh. a way of seeing the world. And then, I mean, we'll talk about it, but the mm. deeper connection with self also just changes your view on yeah. everything. Yeah. So which bit? That's broad. First, which bit? It's all good stuff, but we, mm. break it down for me. So what's the first bit? Where it comes from? I'm not doing my journalist thing very well. Let's do where it comes from. Where does it come from? Yeah, yeah. It comes from the Himalayas in India, not the... Himalayas, um, many thousands of years ago. So it's said to be the oldest um, meditation practice on earth. So it's drawn from the Veda, and the Veda is the oldest recorded body of human knowledge that exists, at least 10,000 years old, but probably lots older. Um, but it was it's passed down through the teachers, orally, oral tradition. And um, in 19... 60s and 1960s it was modernized kind of not really that modernized but put into a form that was suitable for householders and householders in the western world as well as in india and this cognition this change this formulation um came about through the man we know as maharishi Mahashogi. so as i mentioned earlier he's the guy who then taught the beatles this gave it lots of exposure and since then it's remained in that form mm. Um, and that's the form that you learned in. Mm-hmm. So the mantras themselves, the sacred sounds are very, very old. Um, but just the way it's taught today is designed to be suitable for people who live in the world. That's most people, isn't it? <laughs> um, who, uh, let's say, who have um, interact with society, have probably jobs or families, possessions, homes. We call it householders. It's a householder technique. And you can do it twice a day, embed it in your life, and it enhances stuff without sending you do lally, making life too difficult or making... Do lally? T- 
<laughs> oh, is that not well-known expression? That's a new one. Okay, I... so what I mean I like by that, that is some practices might be more suitable for reclusive types where you become very inward and maybe even lose a little bit of connection with reality. This meditation is all about grounding us in a place where we can do everything in the real world better mm-hmm. and enjoy it all more, mm. which leads us on to the next part. So you said, are you committing to all sorts of changes in your life simply by doing this practice? So, yeah, I guess that's my question. Mm. Um, very interesting question. <laughs> You're not committing to anything, but what you want might change. Okay, yeah, that's a way more articulate way of so, thinking about it. Your desires might change, as in what you want to do. And what mm-hmm. I generally find is what's relevant to, what's irrelevant to your evolution as a person, to your growth, starts to fall away in terms of desire. So for me, I completely lost interest in drinking and any other kind of thing like that, drugs, um, because that was irrelevant to me, completely irrelevant. Now to you, you may still like to have a drink, glass of wine with a nice meal. Um, maybe it's even good for, you know, meeting people, business or whatever. So it's probably not completely irrelevant. And therefore you might find it's exactly the same. You have the same amount of desire for alcohol mm. or you might find it moderates a little bit. Mm. See, it depends on the individual and um, what's relevant to you. Mm. So what's irrelevant tends to fall away. Mm. In terms of how we experience the world... Yeah, we start to we start to see it a bit differently, mm. and this it was is why. Kind of like the lessons from the Veda. Mm-hmm. So the lessons from the Veda are interestingly simply that which arises spontaneously and naturally within us when we meditate. <laughs> you see, so yes, you can learn it from the Veda. You could read it; somebody could tell you it, but you can't learn. It's funny. It reminds me of um, something when I when I was I just started meditating. I went on a a retreat with another teacher, a great teacher called Tim Brown, a friend of mine. Um, Tim Brown? Tim Brown, yeah. And um, we hope Tim listens to this because I hope he remembers this bit. Um, We were at this place and there was a bookshop and we'd done the retreat. We were kind of wrapping up the retreat. And there was a book and it was a yellow book, I remember, and it said the book of virtues. I was looking for it and it showed how to be, um, you know, kind, compassionate, patient, all these. And I bought it. And I showed it to Tim and he was not impressed. And he goes, he basically told me that those things either arise naturally within you as part of your state of consciousness or they don't. But you can't learn them from a book, which is very obvious now. (laughs) But back then I was a bit, oh, yeah, a bit of shadow's kind of hiding under my leg. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so this is true. So, yeah, the, um, the Veda talks the truth as experienced by us. Um, And how our perception of the world and therefore our behavior will change generally speaking in a general sense is that as we start to meditate more we start to realize not necessarily consciously and not necessarily intellectually but on some deeper level there is a sense growing that we are not just this individual self that we are actually connected to things now you hear this all the time we're all one and all that right and you can say that, like a lot of these other things, it's all just fridge magnet wisdom. You can say it, but if you don't have some experience of it, it's not actually useful. And you don't embody it, and therefore it doesn't really change much. But as you start to meditate more and more, there's some sense within you that this is a truth. And let's just think about the, the consequences of that. The consequences of that are 
that again, on some level, and all this is on increasing levels, let's say it starts off subtly, but it becomes more and more prominent, um, we realize that we can't hurt somebody else without hurting ourselves. Um, we also realize, if we're all one, right? Um, and we also realize that if somebody has a different opinion to us, then we don't have to make them an enemy because ultimately there's a more collaborative way of working together. Mm. Um, what else could we say about how we feel differently? We, we feel like we want to... It becomes very hard to be unkind. Yes. Because there's a greater sense of empathy with others. Mm. Um, we don't want so much to resist what's happening. This is a bit of a kind of bullet points of what you might experience. But very, a very important part of our kind of I suppose, spiritual or personal evolution is the, the ability to start to let go. Mm. The ability to move into non-resistance mm-hmm. and out of resistance. So when things go, and yes. the, the ability to stop making things wrong, this is a massive mm. step forward. Mm. Do you remember... In one of our chats, our earlier chats, Mm. I was saying to you, I felt this sense of mourning for my life as it was Mm. and my priorities then. And, you know, and I've spoken about it a bit recently, publicly actually, about sort of reflecting back and understanding that I was doing self-work, which has helped me arrive here. Mm. But actually, that was all in ego, which I want to talk about. And then also it was very much on the surface. Mm. Well, I was living on the surface of my life is how I've been talking about it. And so, you know, it's gone now. And I was still like, that was obviously when I just met you and Mm. was starting to practice. And it just felt like, oh God, now everything is so different. And I'm seeing things differently and I want different things. Mm. And I just had this real like, oh, that felt real easy over there. Mm. (laughs) You know, because it wasn't as I wasn't perhaps intellectualizing things on the level that I am now. Yeah, yeah. Know? Yeah, this anyway. is a commonly reported thing that you grieve for the lower state of consciousness. And yes. there's actually a Vedic story, ah. which I'll try and say quite quickly because you can drag it on a bit. But it's, um, it's called My Hut. And it's this little peasant guy that has this hut and it's very primitive, very low ceilings. He has a little potato patch outside and he's always you know, starving pretty much, but he manages to get the potato, just enough potatoes to live, and he lives a very, very poverty-stricken life. And then one day, these, uh, whatever, soldiers or something, come from the castle and say, actually, it's been a mistake, you're the king. He goes, oh, really? Yeah, they take him up to the castle. He's the king, this, you know, he's long-lost king. They install him as king. What did he, he turns out to be an excellent king. He's very good at being kingly. And he does all these king things, and everyone's happy. And then one day he's just looking out from his castle and he sees the hut there in the distance and he starts to grow a bit mournful and he goes, oh, my hut, my hut. He wants to go see his hut. He misses it. He goes, I, I, I want to be back there. That was good back there. It was easy. It was easy. Simple. But was it? So he goes back. Am I trying to add to the ancient story? You're, add, you're adding to it, mate. 
this is not so but sorry. you're kind of right it's yeah. not my story he was okay. thinking it seems simple and all that now I've got all these kingly duties so he goes back because that's what it's like isn't it you've got new duties now new responsibilities to a certain state of consciousness mm-hmm. certain ways you need to behave and all that anyway so he goes back to his hut and he gets in there the first thing he does he bangs his head on the ceiling goes I forgot how low this ceiling was God it's a pain in the ass that ceiling he goes outside right let's have some of those potatoes he used to like those potatoes he says potato blight oh yeah I forgot they're all rotten and horrible he goes, right, let's get out. Let's get back to that castle. So the point being mm. that sometimes we grieve for a lower state of consciousness because we forget what it was really like. Mm. And we just think it'll be less, would there be less responsibility mm. to a higher state? And maybe mm. it'll just be easy. Yeah. So there you go. My hurt, my hurt. <laughs> That's a good story. I'm sorry for um, trying to add to it. Um, <laughs> can we talk about ego versus self? Yeah. So offline exists as an exploration of self Mm -hmm. and broadly, who are we as women, but now you're a man and you're on the podcast. I am. Thank you. I hope I'm okay to be here. Yeah. You're number one. Okay. There's more men to come, everyone. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But who are we without the labels we put on ourselves Mm. and how do we build moral code and character and start living, I guess, more of a truthful life outside of the one we build for platforms like Instagram. Yes. So as the podcast has evolved and my knowledge base, I guess, deepens and my own sort of, um, I guess, spiritual journey without wanting to sound too like woo-woo with that, Mm -hmm. um, I'm now reflecting back and even as I listen to early episodes and I think about the the concept, I can see it really does sit in ego. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is good actually now that I know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but can you tell us about the Vedic view on sort of personality, ego and self? Mm. And, you know, I guess the way I've been visualising it is like a babushka doll. That's right. Did I? Did we talk about that? Not that I know of. I'm going to claim that. Thank you. Great, because that's exactly right. Although how to make it simple for this, we'll see. Okay, everyone, are you ready? (laughs) Going to classroom now. I know. And I will say, I have spoken a little bit about Mm -hmm. the concept of um, ego versus self or soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You'll be better at it. Mm. Um, And obviously a lot of it I've gotten sort of from you as well. So So I might actually leave the babushka doll out of it and simplify it down from there because we can get the same essence. Before we learn to meditate, for example, um, or have some other spiritual practice which gets in touch with the true self, we identify with, we tend to, I could say, but really it's just we identify with an external version of what we are, externally referenced. So what have we achieved? What have we failed at? What do we look like? What, importantly, what have other people told us we are? What does society tell us we are? All these things go to form a picture and how we're received by society or not well received by society. All these things go to form a picture which makes up our impression of ourself. So the Vedic, the Vedic view, oh, we're coming to the babushka doll. We're going to have to. Do the doll, okay. do the doll. All right, just hang in there, everyone. <laughs> it's going to make sense. Just stick with me. Okay, so from the Vedic view, there is the... We go from the outside layers to the inside more subtle. I wish I had subtle. filming you. You're doing the hand movement. I'm doing the hands here. Yeah. So what happens is we we go through this, 
the more um, gross levels to the more subtle level. So we hear from somebody what they think we are. It goes in through the ears, through the senses, and then it gets to the intellect. And the intellect acts as like a bouncer. It's a bouncer to information before the information goes into our ego and defines what we are. So let's say that somebody said to you, Alison, you're a bad girl. <laughs> that comes in through the ears, in through the hearing, then the, the intellect's there standing at the door of the club, which is the ego. And it goes, hang on, let's have a look at this. You're a bad girl. Yeah, it looks around into the club. Doesn't seem to be anything saying you're not a bad girl. You can go in. You're a bad girl goes into the ego, and that starts to become part of your self-identity. Mm-hmm. And let's say you hear that quite a bit. Every time you hear you're a bad girl, that comes in, the intellect looks around, oh, yeah, so you're a bad girl kind of a club. That's the kind of clientele. In you go. And you're starting to get quite a strong self-identification if you're a bad girl. Then somebody says, you're a good girl. That comes in through the ears, through the senses. Intellect sees that. You're a good girl, looks behind you, goes, no, I don't think so. It's not for you. This is not your place. It's not allowed in as part of your identity. You see how it's working? Mm-hmm. And this is how we build our identity. This is how we start to, this is who we start to believe we are. And then something very different happens when you learn to meditate, for example, with this technique. And what happens is this new thing comes in through the ears, initially through the ears, because when your teacher tells you in a mantra, and this sound goes in through the ears and then it sneaks past the bouncer. Yeah. And for the first time ever, it actually sneaks past the ego because it has no, nothing to be intellectually understood. And then the ego flips to look inside and inside it sees your true nature. And your true nature is pure consciousness with all those qualities. And then the mantra comes back out and then it goes back in again. The ego flips around and each time it flips around, rather than looking to the outside for the first time for its identification, for the first time ever, it looks inside to the deeper state of you. And the deeper state of all of us is beautiful. The deeper state of all of us has the qualities of love, compassion, creativity, adaptability, all those good things. So they start to imprint subtly on the mind and you start to identify more with that and less than what with what everyone else has told you you are. And then what starts to happen is because there's this new, deeper, truer information about what you are, those false ideas of what you are, because you're not really integrally a bad girl, can't coexist. So they start to be released from the ego's idea of itself. So we start to become more connected to our deeper, truer self. Mm-hmm. Is that just about made sense? Yeah. Okay, good. Um. It's really like, you know, something happened then. Do you feel that mm-hmm. when you're teaching, mm-hmm. when you're, obviously it's coming through you. Correct. It's not yeah. you, it's coming through you. Mm-hmm. And so everything about you changes. Uh-huh. But you've probably never watched I've never yourself. watched it, but I'm aware of it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What does it look like? Um, oh, I'm going to become self-conscious. You but, can tell yeah. in your eyes and just broadly on your face that it's not really you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to talk about charm. Mm-hmm. And I have to say this, I guess it's the word charm is charming, mm-hmm. you know, when you, and as I've been coming to sort of a couple of the group meditations, that seems to be um, a very prominent topic in the discussion after. 
Um, do you refer to it as a finer level of feeling or is that wrong? No, that's exactly right. That's right. I'm mm-hmm. like so self-conscious. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you explain to us what is charm? Yeah. And then is charm in fact desire? Okay. <laughs> Getting deep in here. This is good. I know. Okay. Okay. So this is, by the way, everyone who's listening, this is a pretty... Like, I'm going to try and make it accessible, but this is a reasonably advanced Vedic knowledge session. Okay. So, if the first time you listen to this, it's a little bit like, oh, I don't know about all this, have another go, because it will start to make more sense the more you hear it. Mm. And especially if you meditate and then listen to it again, it will make even more sense. Just wanted to give that little yeah, disclaimer. That's really helpful, actually. Mm. I'm like, put us in the deep part. Yeah, no, but it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. And do and you know what? It's very practical. That's the whole point about this Vedic stuff. And what I'm interested in it is the practical application of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why we talk about charm a lot on Monday nights after group meditation is because it's the means of navigating through life. And what do we want to do? We want to navigate, you know, making choices. We want to make the right choices to have the best time. And possibly, you know, as we move on further in the journey to help the biggest number of people. So... That's mm. why people want to know. Of course, it's a hot topic, you know. So what's charm? Charm is intuition, basically. Um, so uh, the more we meditate, the more we have access to, or we, the more we connect with nature or pure consciousness itself. With me so far? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm just the, trying to do that annoying thing. I'm like, mm, mm. No, that's, I'm, that's no, I need those actually to keep me going so I know I'm on the right track with you here. Should I nod? You can mm or nod. Okay. Um, so the more we meditate, the more we start to get, the more we start to connect with nature. And therefore, the more we can, more clearly, we can pick up on the signals which nature is providing us in any moment. So in any moment, there is something that nature wants us to do. And that thing that it wants us to do is the thing which is most evolutionary, this word that keeps coming up, most progressive for us and for everything else. So it's the best thing for us to do, the best role in that moment. I've got to give you a quick aside here because the best description I've heard of how this feels, although this is a very extreme example, but it's just a good story I need to tell you, is uh, to ever tell you about the guy who I met who became enlightened for 24 hours, 40 years ago, for one day. No. He became completely enlightened. It's a guy I know, it's a lovely guy, and... um, he became completely enlightened. <laughs> so he was driving across a bridge and then suddenly it happened. And amongst the symptoms were that he was looking at the sky and he thought, oh, that sky looks very familiar. Why do I know that sky? I know it, I know it, which might seem a funny thing to say because it's the sky. But he goes, oh, it's me. And he realised he was looking at himself and he found it so beautiful. But also what he noticed is that in every moment, his words were there was a command. And the command was what, in his words, God wanted him to do and he said that he wouldn't dream of doing anything other than that thing because it was so exquisitely fulfilling to do that and that may have been simply to put his attention on somebody or go and buy a sandwich or whatever it happened to be so the theory is um let's say that was his experience Mm. the theory is that in every moment there is something we should be doing and when we start to settle the mind down, then there's this kind of like mildly pleasant, it's not always pleasant, it's a kind of complex area, but let's just say for now, there's a sense of something you want to do. It's like pulling a direction. 
Mm. There's like a bit of sprinkling of magic dust on one of the options. And very, very quickly, you feel like, oh, that's the thing I need to do. Now, what we're used to doing is using the intellect to decide what to do next. And the intellect isn't actually very good at this. It makes, it's just guessing because mm. it can't see into the future. Okay. But intuition apparently can on some level and it's showing us the way. And the knack to get is the ability to sense this kind of little tug in the direction and go with it rather than letting the intellect come, come in and go, oh, well, no, I don't know about this. I think I should ratify this decision. And, you, you know, this is going to be anarchy if we just do this. You know, you're going to end up in chaos. Um, actually, as you probably know, as you're listening to this, dear listener, when you have gone with your intuition, your gut, things have flown, uh, flown fairly smoothly or much more smoothly. And what we tend to find is that as we move in the direction of charm, go with our gut more often, that things, um, things start to evolve in a way which brings us growth and progress. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a complex area because, as you rightly said, there is a shadow side of mm. charm, which is desire with attachment. So if, if you're not... Let's so say, desire only exists with attachment. No. In this version that we're going to describe it. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you could have, you know, it could be, you could feel desire in a way which was divinely guided. But um, let's say for now we're talking about the opposite of charm would be desire with attachment. Um, so I want something really badly. I want something really badly. And it's, but that isn't necessarily because I've been meditating and I'm, um, I'm in touch with what nature wants and therefore going with nature's plan. This could be simply something that's coming from my subconscious accumulations, something from within me that's based on some sense of lack or fear, something within my subconscious. And it's not really in my evolutionary interests or anyone else's for me to do that. And yet I feel attached to that thing. This is different. So the more we meditate, the more we can start to discern between the two. There's, this isn't. This might sound just like absolute madness, <laughs> but it's um, it's written about what's his name. The book Matt is about to refer to is Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell. It was published after The Tipping Point and before Outliers. Casual. But there's a book called Blink, which is a scientific examination of the fact that the first decision or cognition we come to in response to anything is actually usually ends up being the best one but we often ignore it and try and work it Mm. out so in summary following charm is a case of feeling that feeling that you should do and leaping before you look Mm. not examining it intellectually and if you don't like where you land you leap again and this is the process of going Mm. through life and eventually it starts off maybe a bit like riding a bike in that you're having to adjust left and right and i'm going down the hill so i lean back a bit and all that quite consciously but after a while, just like riding a bike, it starts to become completely unconscious. You, you're just steered by the impulses without any actual dialogue around what you should be doing. Mm. You're just going to feel like, yeah, I'm doing this now and I'm doing that. And also not needing third-party input or validation or well, Yeah, because approval. you'd be relying on their state of consciousness. Yes. So if we're indulging this theory, we'd say that what would we go for somebody else's opinion or would we go for the opinion of cosmic intelligence itself? And that's what's giving you the really clever answers all the time. Mm. So a good description of it, my teacher Tom Knowles uses that the thing for us to do in any moment is actually the result of trillions of calculations 
throughout the whole universe. And all we see when we're in touch with charm is the answer on the calculator screen. And we mm. start, oh, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. So you don't make decisions in the same way. You're just kind of choiceless and mm. flowing. Kind of going where you're led. Going yeah. where you're not. Going where you're not. Going where you're led. <laughs> I'm learning. Abs- going, where you're, going where you're led, absolutely. Um, but it feels like you're doing the leading. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things I've been struggling with is, um, I guess, trusting my, no, that's wrong, accessing my intuition, which used to be extremely strong. Mm -hmm. And I guess as we get older, we get more practical, you know, we're perhaps programmed to be a little more calculated and take Mm. less risks. Mm. And I wonder what advice you might have for people and therefore me <laughs> yeah. um, on how do we, on the process of, of I guess, letting go uh-huh. um, and following charm and identifying that it is in fact charm and not desire. How do we tell the difference? Yeah. And like what advice would you have for letting go of, I guess, everything you think you need and want? I mean, that's broad, but. Yeah. Well, okay, so what I'll say in answer to that is that letting go is what it's all about. So if it was easy to just let go of everything that we're attached to, which didn't serve us, then like, let's put it this way. If we arrived at, say, you and I, we go on this big journey together, this big spiritual journey, and we get to the finish line. We're going to, though. Exactly, sorry, when. When, when we get to the finish line and it's pure enlightenment there, and you'd look around to me and you'd say, oh, you could have told me, Matt, so you just need to let go. I'll be like, yeah, that's it, basically. Um, so letting go is something we do incrementally. Letting go of attachment. And letting go, what's letting go of attachment? Letting go of attachment is letting go of the need to be controlled by a sense of discomfort. Okay? So let's look at a good example of letting go. We've been in a relationship. The person's left us. We can kind of tell their hearts, not they don't quite love us. Yeah, not quite in the way they need to and hence we've separated. But you can't let go. What does that mean? What that means is you're not prepared to feel the feeling you should feel. Mm. In order, you're trying to find ways of avoiding feeling that feeling, working out plotting ways to get back with them, da 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 When what you should really do, and you kind of know deep down, is to feel the feeling of grieving and losing them. And through that feeling of grieving and lo- feeling that process, going through that process you'll grow and move on mm. and that will be the right passage. Mm. So um, so it's like, yeah. I mean, just letting it engulf you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, just letting oh, it engulf it's you. painful. Yeah, it is painful. But the more, uh, again, like all this stuff we're talking about today, and this really is pretty important to say, is that all this stuff is very difficult, stroke impossible if you're not meditating. Yes. You know, because if you're not meditating, you're so caught up in your feelings and your thoughts, there is no escape. And your ego. Yeah, and the ego. Mm. So there is no escape. You've got nowhere else to stand. So when you're feeling, you know, when you're feeling really bad, you feel bad and then you start thinking about it. And as you start thinking about how bad you feel and trying to find out ways, you're entering into resistance and the whole thing gets even more powerfully overwhelming and you suffer even more. And then more. you're having an anxiety attack. And then you're having an anxiety attack. So I know that what, feeling. what happens um, in life is that and this is not that well known. I think it will become better known. Some of these things that I'm talking about today will be just everyone will know them soon. But 
For example, pain is inevitable. If you if somebody leaves you, for example, same example, you've you've got a broken heart, whatever, you're gonna feel pain, you're gonna feel grief. But suffering is optional. Suffering is proportional exactly to the amount you resist what's happened. If you can accept what's happened and feel it. That's the aversion versus resistance. Yes, <laughs> kind of. We won't go there right now because I don't no. know how much longer we've got left. No, no. But when you, um, yeah, when you get the hang of being able to be with the feelings without listening to the stories that they tell, this will allow you to move through things, let go of the attachments and move through the growth, the growing pains more quickly. Mm. Um, and when we meditate, we start to connect with a place where we can be the witness of these feelings and thoughts without being completely bound up in them, controlled by them. It gives us a sanctuary, somewhere where we can peacefully and wisely observe the pain and feel it, frankly, feel it fully, but not be kind of controlled by it and allow ourselves to feel it in order to move through it and liberate ourselves. Mm. But if you haven't got if you haven't got access to the sanctuary, then you're just kind of trapped in your thinking. And the sanctuary and is the meditation. The sanctuary is the place, in this example, <laughs> the sanctuary is the place within us that we learn to sit in stillness through the meditation. Mm. It's us. It's actually the deeper part of us. Mm. And when we're in touch with that, then we can observe the stuff that's going on without buying into it in the same way and being controlled by it. We can feel the things without acting on it, without speaking it. And as a result of all that, we grow. Mm. It's quite an ambitious topic we've chewed off here. But I'm an ambitious gal. Great. I do um, have one more topic I want to cover before we finish. Yeah. And that is um, destruction and evolution, which mm. you've touched on slightly. Yeah. But I wrote this quote down from a podcast. It might have been the Vedic view. I actually can't remember. Yeah. And I've got to get better at noting when I'm quoting someone. Yeah, so that's Tom Knowles, The Vedic Worldview? Yes, yeah. The Vedic Worldview, yeah. Very which good is podcast. Amazing podcast. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it, he, he may have said, I will check this, um, mm. move unhesitatingly towards what you desire, otherwise the window for evolution closes. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if we could talk about maintenance being an, a block to evolution. Mm -hmm. I know this is like a lot. Yeah. Um, and how destruction of that which is no longer serving us is actually a good thing. Yes. And then perhaps I'm relating that to, say, the relationship breakup, the job loss, the, the thing that feels like it happened to us mm -hmm. and we're a victim in it and of it. Yeah. But when actually we failed to follow charm and evolve and therefore... Yeah. Is the universe just pulling the rug out and saying, we're moving on, let's go? Yeah, 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 this is good. So this is all um, good to know, and it particularly helps us not resist. Because this is basically, you know, you hear people saying all the time, oh, everything happens for a reason. This is the mechanics behind that. Right. All right. So, and the mechanics for basically why shit happens. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the Vedic view, and this is, this is Vedic philosophy 101, and this is the stuff that I learned very much from Tom Knowles and the courses he runs and all that stuff. But this underpins our understanding of life. And it's really got a lot of ramifications if you fully accept it. So from the Vedic view, there is no such thing as good and bad or good and evil in the polarized sense. Instead, there are three interbalancing 
interrelating forces which are present in all things at all times. And at any one time, one's primary, one's secondary, and one's third, tertiary. And these three forces are creation, maintenance, and destruction. And if we want to be happy chappies, if we want to be living an enjoyable life, useful, evolving, helping others, again, ideally, then we need to be prioritizing creation. And that means doing innovative new things, moving into the unknown. And that's what Tom was referring to when he's saying go for, go towards that you desire. He's saying just go into the unknown, go forth, and this is where all the good stuff happens. Think about it. All the best stuff that's ever happened to you has happened when you went into the unknown. Yeah. Correct? But what we tend to do as humans is we go into the unknown, we love it there, get something really good, and then we go, right, I'm holding on to this. Whether it's a job, a house, a partner, a something or other. And we hold on tight. And we go into, after maybe a little bit of a honeymoon period, we go into maintenance, trying to keep the status quo and arrange things so that nothing changes. But that is a resistance to the very laws of nature because everything's always changing. And nature does not like stagnation. It does not like just over-maintenance. After a while, if it sees too much of that, it will start to... You'll get a few little warnings. Let's say if you... Let's give it, it's always good to give examples. Let's go to the relationship one again. You go out and at, fir- and at first you're going on all these interesting dates and to different places, you know, Burning Man and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, and then the next thing you know, you know, you just found that you're just in Netflix pizza all the time. You're in maintenance. And it's, you start to feel uncomfortable. We've all been there. You start to get that kind of, you're getting a clip around the ear from nature. It's saying, you need to get evolving again, otherwise I'm going to, break this up and if you ignore that if you listen to that and you get creative again because you're feeling uncomfortable you go oh no I'll get creative again and you start doing new things then yeah that's good but if you don't eventually nature will come in and if you haven't removed what's become irrelevant destruction will remove that for you and in pretty brutal fashion usually Mm. so this is where we've been holding on for something for too long and we haven't been innovating or changing or moving into the unknown and then destruction goes right that's become irrelevant you haven't removed it I'm going to remove it that which has become irrelevant is removed. Now you've got a mess on your hands. Mm. Big mess. So you've got a mess on your hands. You need to, how do you sort out a mess? You've got to get creative. So creation is now back up to the top. Mm. Maintenance comes in secondary and destruction comes in third again. And then you have a cycle, a creation cycle completed. Mm. And once we become aware of this, it can keep us on our toes. Um, stop us stagnating. Mm. It's very powerful. Keep things flowing. Yeah, it's very, very useful. Um, I ask each of my guests mm. a final question. Great. I'm very excited to hear yours. Mm. Um, so as I've explained, offline is an exploration of self. Yeah. And who are we without the labels we put on ourselves or perhaps society puts on us. So for mm-hmm. you, Matt, meditation teacher. Yeah. Father. What else would DJ? you label? DJ, uh-huh. F45R. Uh, lapsed F45R. Lapsed F45R. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and sort of when you're sitting in your true self, and mm. I don't think anyone knows there's perhaps, um, as well as a Vedic meditation teacher, but who are you and how do you identify with that? I'm um, a nice bloke who just wants to help people and um, have as many loving experiences as possible. Um, who has a slightly po- verging on an unhealthy addiction to house music and um, 
next Bacolas at the moment. Um, <laughs> is that all right? Mm, yeah. I think that's good. That's it, yeah. Um, but I remember the moment when my teacher, Tom Knowles, he said, um, he told me that he was just a normal bloke. And that was a very important and powerful moment for me, mm. actually, and my very connecting moment. Mm. And that's absolutely what I am. And, um, and until I, I actually am asked questions about this stuff, I'll just be, you know, doing normal stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've spoken about that before. I'm yeah. like, yeah. is it hard to be seen on perhaps a platform or a pedestal or like that you mm. are, yes, um, holier than thou, as I was saying in yeah. in the beginning. And I yeah, think I shatter people's thing. illusions pretty quickly with that. So in rather, a good way. Than, yeah, hopefully. So so rather than running the risk of anyone um, having a, a perfected idea of me or an idealizing mm. me, instead, I most of my teachings that I give uh, revolve around my experience of imperfection and how that's helped me learn and grow. Mm. So that's a good way of getting out of that little problem. Mm. And again, it's more relatable. Mm. Well, I have to thank you for being on my podcast. I'm not nervous at all now. No, it's all right now, isn't it? Just yeah. could have gone for another hour. Easy. Totally. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, it's oh. been great. Thanks thank for having you. me. It's I an honour to be it. the first man. Very, very chuffed. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Offline. Visit getoffline.co to explore more episodes, the online courses I've created to help you succeed consciously, and upcoming community events. Follow getoffline.co on Instagram and me. My handle is Alison Larson Rice. Lastly, if you know someone who would benefit from hearing these honest conversations, please share offline with them. <laughs>